Daniel is to the Old Testament what 1 Peter is to the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter is written in the very first words, um, the very first sentence of the book. Uh, Peter says that he's writing to the church in exile. Um, so in Daniel, uh, God's people are in exile. In 1 Peter, uh, Peter is writing to this group of persecuted Christians who are in exile in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So they're spread out, um, persecuted group. And there's a guy named Nero who is in charge of Rome. Now, if you know your history at all, you know that Nero ended up, it was the greatest persecution the church has ever known. He just slaughtered the Christian church in, a, in horrific ways. He would, he would have these lavish Roman parties where, um, where um, Roman elites would gather together and, and, and have a party in his courtyard. And in order to, um, in order to uh, light up the courtyard and have their party, they uh, covered Christians in wax and would hold them from poles that they would be the candles of the party. Um, this is the kind of persecution they were facing. They were thrown to lions and in the, in the Colosseum. They were helplessly thrown to gladiators. It was a horrific time. First Peter, the book of First Peter is written right before Nero does all this stuff. So basically what's going on is that tension is rising. They're not killing Christians yet. But everybody's starting to hate Christians. They're a marginalized group. Uh, they're a scorn group. People look at the Christians and they kind of say they're the problem with our society. This is why he ended up persecuting them and killing them all because they were an easy target. Because everybody was already kind of starting to marginalize them, hate them, see them as the problem with their society. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I think that is probably more similar and relatable to where we are in our context than the Nero persecution stuff, meaning this. Um, there are certainly brothers and sisters around the world in, in the Middle East, um, in China, uh, certainly in parts of Africa, who can relate to a Nero type of ruthless persecution. Um, we are partners with a, with a pastor um, in Togo, West Africa, and I was meeting with him this week, and a country just outside of his, Boko Haram, um, a terrorist group has just been slaughtering Christians. So there are definitely parts of the world that can relate to that. But when you talk about um, what's going on in First Peter, where this this subtle marginalization, this subtle, we don't really like these Christians. We, we, we wish they weren't a part of our society and our culture. I think that's where we are, honestly. I think it's this that might one day turn into an all-out uh, deep persecution. But right now, I think this is where we find ourselves. And so Peter is writing to a church <laughs> Um, that is really where we are, the marginalized, hated people of society. Um, and, and maybe I should just say that, uh, whether you're a Christian here or not, um, you do realize that this gathering um, on a college campus is kind of foolish, right? You, you, do, you do realize y'all are the crazy ones, right? Uh, you, you're the weird ones. Um, you're the ones of like, we don't really have a category for you all. We don't really know what y'all are doing. Um, this whole Jesus Christian thing, um, we're having apologetics, and I'm glad you're having apologetic events because they've got all these hangups. Like, y'all really believe in a God that could allow so much evil and suffering? So we're the weird ones. We're the marginalized ones. And I think it's okay for us to just say that and admit that and then ask the question, okay, how do we live in that reality? And that's why the book of Daniel is so helpful. But First Peter is helpful in that regard as well. And Peter opens his letter with something that's really interesting. It's an interesting move. What he does is he opens a letter with some of the most hopeful promises in all of Scripture. Um, it seems like a contradiction. 
But Peter doesn't see it that way. Meaning it seems like here's these people that are hated, persecuted, marginalized, scorn of society. And Peter basically opens his letter by saying, man, aren't things great? Isn't this awesome? And it seems like a contradiction, but in his mind, it's not a contradiction. What he does is he invites them to look past their hopeless circumstances and see the truer and hopeful story that is theirs. They are, when I preach this sermon to our church, the, the, the title of my sermon was Exiles with Their Heads in the Clouds. And that's essentially what Peter's going to ask us to be, to be these exiles with their heads in the clouds. The idiom heads in the clouds um, carries with this, this kind of naive, maybe even negative con connotation in our world. Um, someone who doesn't live in reality, doesn't, doesn't admit the problems that are around them. They just kind of turn a blind eye and not deal with reality. But Peter's contention is that living with your heads in the clouds of God's promises is living in reality. And by focusing on that reality, this truer reality of God's promise and hope, we are able to endure this lesser reality. Let me illustrate like this. Uh, you're, you're UK students, um, so surely you know uh, the state song of Kentucky, even if you're not from Kentucky. It gets played every basketball and football game. My old Kentucky home. But, but I wonder if you know the story behind the, that, that uh, beloved state song. Um, it's the story of an African-American family that is so happy with their life in Kentucky. And so, so it, starts, it says, the sun shines bright in my old Kentucky home. Tis summer, and excuse the, um, the, the crass language in our culture, but this, this, is, this is the language they used back then. Tis summer, the darkies are gay, and they're happy. The corn tops ripe, the meadows are in bloom, while the birds make music all the day. The young folks roll, so picture these, these um, young um, black children rolling on the, on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy, and bright. But then the song takes a somber turn where it says, hard times come knocking at the door. And what happened is that financial troubles forced this family to be sold um, to the plantations of the Deep South. And their new life on these plantations is obviously miserable, historically speaking. We know this to be true. And so the way they consoled themselves during their days of suffering, during their reality and circumstances that are horrific, the way they consoled themselves on these southern plantations is with memories of their old Kentucky home. It says, weep no more, my lady, weep no more today. We will sing one song from my old Kentucky home from my old Kentucky home far away. It's the longing for this home away that sustains them in their current slavery. And that whole idea actually gave us an entire genre of music called the Negro Spirituals, which is a beautiful genre that if you've never gotten into, it is powerful. If, you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you don't have that genre of music as a part of your, your repertoire, you're missing out. Because these spirituals got to something that, that we miss in our church. And, and it came to be as a way to cope with the harsh realities of slavery. As they slaved away, they sang to themselves songs of hope. They sang to themselves words that lifted their eyes off the world as they knew it and placed them firmly upon the world as they longed to know it. They lived, in essence, with their heads in the clouds. And that's what Peter is doing in our passage. He opens his letters to exiles with this amazing vision of hope of another world. 
And in this way, he lifts our eyes off these days of exile and onto the coming days of hope. So we're going to meditate on this uh, passage. You can bring it up. I'm sorry. We have it printed out. We have it printed on. Oh, you have it printed. Don't bring it up. Do you have it printed? Mm-hmm. got it? Cool. Awesome. Right. So we're going to, um, we're going to uh, meditate on, on this with three brief thoughts. I promise brief. Um, the surety of our hope in verse 3, the supremacy of our hope in verse 4, and the security of our hope in verse 5. So surety, supremacy, security. Okay? Surety of our hope, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. The phrase born again comes from Jesus himself in John 3, if you're familiar, very familiar language. And the imagery speaks to the uniqueness of Christian conversion. Every religion, every worldview, every philosophy is competing for your conversion. They want to convert you to their ideals. And Jesus is no different. Jesus wants to convert you. But he speaks, and the Bible speaks of conversion in a very different way, as an actual rebirth. We are born again. Unlike conventional understandings of conversion, following Jesus is not a different way of doing this life. It is a new life. It is not a new worldview. It is a new world. And this new worldview, unlike our world, is a world of hope, is what Peter's saying. He says we are born again. We enter into a whole new world to a living hope. You see, the world knows nothing but dead hope. Um, hope, hope in our time is illusory, meaning it's an illusion. It's something we comfort ourselves with, but in the end, it always proves in vain. You name your hope, whether it be wealth or power or fame or marriage or career or legacy or being the good person, morality or pleasure seeking, whatever you choose to place your hope in, you need to know that your choice will in the end prove to be a dead hope. We don't like to read the depressing philosophers like Nietzsche, but nobody can ever really refute their logic. When they look at this world and they essentially say, everything is in vain. The book of Ecclesiastes admits that. That's our, that's our existential uh, book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, where he looks at everything that people are living for, everything they're putting their hope in, and he says, meaningless, meaningless, vain, 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 vain. And he's right. But we are born again into a different world. And within that world, hope is not a dead thing. It says it's a living thing. And there's a reason for this. Peter says we are born again to a living hope, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Christians have their hope completely bound up in Jesus. If you were to ask our question, what is your hope? Our answer is Jesus. And so when they crucified him and when they buried him, it would seem... That our hope has gone the way of every other hope in this world. Another dead hope. Another hope is in vain. But something remarkable happened. This hope rose from its own death. And that means that Jesus is literally the only option that actually has proven to you to be worthy of your hope. Hope in Jesus is not wishful thinking, unlike every other hope. On Easter morning, Jesus surprised the world as the one and only hope that is stronger than its own death. It's not wishful thinking to hope in Jesus. It's true thinking. You can attack this hope with your doubts and your skepticism. Um, The world can shame this hope 
and mock this hope. Um, we can attack it with hatred and persecution, but you're not going to be able to kill this hope because this hope is in Jesus who is risen from the dead. And you can't kill Jesus. So our hope is sure, but how good is this hope? In other words, we, we are thankful that our hope is alive. That's great news. This is the one hope that can't die, but is it a good hope? What, what is so good about what we are hoping in? This is where Peter takes us next. Verse 4, the supremacy of our hope. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter intentionally describes our inheritance with these negation words, which is really cool. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, why not phrase it in the positive? Meaning instead of saying it's undefiled, why not call it pure? Well, what Peter's doing here is he is drawing upon the language of our experience in this world as we know it. As I said in the first point, everything we hope in, in the end, proves to be a dead hope. And because of this, our hopes bear the marks of death. To use the language of Peter, everything that we hope in is perishing. Everything we hope in is defiled. Everything we hope in is fading. Everything. Whether it be as big as a culture, a nation, a market, an institution, or as small as my health, my possessions, the, the bathrooms that uh, my wife and I uh, remodel that look so lovely now to us, but one day will break and go out of style, and then somebody else one day will buy the house and tear down what we now think is so great and update it again to something better, only to one day be torn down again. And on and on the cycle goes. It's depressing to think about, but it's true. Everything we hope in has the marks of death, defiled, perishing, failing. And we have to watch it die. We have to watch our hopes succumb to this perishing, defilement, and fading existence. But Peter is promising a hope of the opposite. That's why he takes the language of this corruptible world, and what he does is he negates it. In essence, he mocks the nature of this fallen world with a promise that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But there's something else to this way of phrasing things that, that, that's important to understand. What it does is it retains what we love about this world only without its corruption, meaning this. He doesn't, when he's talking about what is our living hope, what is the promise that he wants us to fixate on? He does not promise... Um, this celestial, mysterious, otherworldly existence or anything like that. Instead, what is his promise? His promise is simply the removal of everything that harms what we love about this life. It's not that Peter is promising something utterly different. He is promising all that we love, all that we know, but without the threat of it ever perishing, defiling, or fading. In other words, the promise is the glorification of this experience, or, to use the language I'm using, the supremacy of this experience. That is to say, this experience, as good as it gets. This is the future hope. So imagine love, but perfect love. The fullness of love, without those things that we've grown accustomed to corrupting and defiling love, like betrayal and jealousy and coveting and selfishness and so forth. Imagine community, but perfect community. The fullness of community without these things that we have grown accustomed to defiling and corrupting community. Prejudice, slander, hatred, violence, racism, and so forth. Imagine joy, but perfect joy. 
joy, the fullness of joy, without these things that we have grown accustomed to corrupting it, like boredom and disappointment and tears and regret. Imagine your health, the perfect health, the fullness of health, without those things that we have grown accustomed to corrupting and defiling health, aging, pain, dementia, cancer, and ultimately death. Our heavenly existence, the promise to exiles, is not something that we could never imagine. It is exactly what we love about this glorious existence, only with the negation of everything we despise about this fallen existence. It is this life, only the supremacy of this life. This is what he's promising us as exiles. The surety of our hope, the supremacy of our hope, and then finally, and very importantly, the security of our hope. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, listen to this, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now notice the two action words here. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What? Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Our inheritance, this promise, is kept for us, who are being guarded. And that assurance is so important because any Christian will tell you that what we struggle with is not necessarily whether God's promises are true, but whether they're true for us. We believe the first point, God's hope is sure. We believe the second point, God's hope is supreme. But we wonder whether God's hope is secure, at least for me. And do you know why we think that is safe? Is that the case? You know, we're so skeptical about it. Because we have proven over and over again our ability to mess up any and every good thing in our life. This life has taught me nothing if not my ability to screw things up. So we talk about these things that we hope in and how they're fading and in vain and one time and so, at some point they'll die. But the other dynamic is I had a tendency to I myself had a tendency to screw up the things that I hope in. And so here comes the gospel with its sure and supreme promise of hope, but deep down we're conflicted. It sounds amazing. I want everything that you have been saying, I want it so badly to be true, but I know myself. I know my ability to mess up a good thing. And so we fear, in the end, that all of this glorious hope will elude us. Or, maybe a better way to say that is that we will elude it. Well, and perhaps the best news of all, Peter tells us that like, unlike everything else in our life, again, we are born again to a different type of world and a different type of hope. Unlike everything else in our life, this is the one thing you can't mess up. And the reason he is so sure of this is that you have nothing to do with it. Look again at the grammar because it's very intentional. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You aren't keeping it. He is keeping it for you. Who by God's power are being guarded. You aren't guarding yourself with your own power. God is guarding you with his power. And notice how Peter even views our faith. We are being we are being guarded by God's power through faith. Even our faith is of God. And so can you mess things up? Yes, of course you have, and you have a lifetime of demonstrating that, that is so. But that's not the question here. Your strength, your ability to obtain this hope has no bearing on this discussion. Go back to verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who is the subject and who is the direct object of this living hope? You're in college. You should know your grammar here, okay? Actually, maybe not. I did not know grammar in college. <laughs> who is the subject? Who is the direct object of living hope? God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. From beginning to end, it is all of God. He is the subject, we are the object, and therefore from beginning to end, all of this is secure. So, what this means, friends, is that without fear or hesitation, you may now lose yourself in the promise of hope. I am giving you permission to let your longings run wild, to let hope run wild, indulge in it, revel in it, because it's coming for you. That last phrase of verse 5, it is ready to be revealed in the last days. It is coming for you, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. Now, of course, I must say that if this hope is not yours, that's certainly a possibility here. I, I don't know some familiar faces here, but I certainly don't know most of you well. So I, I, must, I must have the caveat of saying this applies to those whose hope is in Jesus. But I would only say to you, if that's not you, why in heaven's name not? This much I know is true of your life. Again, I don't know you, but I know this. Everything this passage is promising, the opposite is true for what you are living for. I don't know what you're living for. I don't know what your hope is in, but I know this. It is oh so fragile. And I think your anxiety is bearing witness to this. Either you will ne Here's why it's fragile. Here's why hope in this world is such a vain, futile attempt. Either you will never obtain it, or you will obtain it, and you'll realize just how fleeting it is. So your college students, let me try to name a few things that you might be tempted to find hope in and show you what I mean. Um, maybe career. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you're here in college is a stepping stone to the great career, uh, the great wealth that one day you want to have. Here's the cruel reality. Either... You'll never get it. You won't get into the grad school you want to get into. You won't get into the career that you want to get into. You won't get the wealth and, and the fortune that you dream of. Either you won't obtain it, and then your hope has let you down. Or, even worse, you will obtain it, and you'll wake up and you say, this is it. Do you know how miserable rich people are? They are miserable. I know a lot of them. They're miserable. So either you won't get it. Or you will get it and you'll say, oh, this sucks. What about spouse? Um, some, for some people, they spend their college days, yes, doing the education thing, but also with one eye to, who am I going to marry? Who am I going to marry? Who am I going to marry? Either, either you won't. You won't. In our day and age, especially if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is increasingly becoming a reality. One of my dearest friends um, in life is, is 41 and single. Either you won't find what you're hoping for, or you'll get married, you'll do the honeymoon, you'll come back, and you'll say, uh-oh, this is not all it's supposed to be. This is hard. This is sanctifying. This is difficult. At times this can be miserable. And certainly, if my hope is in my spouse, then my hope is in vain. 
What about fame? It's a big one for you all. Um, being noticed, you know, the fuel of Instagram and all that. Uh, you want to be liked, you want to be fame, you want to be popular, whatever, whatever, whatever language you want to put on it. Um, either the whole cold hard reality is you're just never going to be popular. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it is what it is. Some people just ain't popular. <laughs> or, or you're going to get popular. Cool. You got a following. You went viral. I don't know. Cool. You'll wake up that day and you'll say, oh, I'm still not happy. How in the world am I so popular and so unhappy? How do so many people like me and I'm not happy? My hope is let me down. Y'all, I could do this all night. We could just go around the room and say, name your hope, give it to me, and I'll show you how vain and fleeting it is. Because you'll never obtain it, or if you do obtain it, you'll see that it's not what it's supposed to be. Hope is fleeting. The invitation is to repent of all these lesser hopes and be born again into a living hope. And to those followers of Jesus, exiles of culture though we may be, I want to invite you, dare I say command you, to be hope cynics no longer. Instead, to let your longings, your dreams, your imaginations, your expectations, let hope run wild in your life. Live with your heads in the clouds of God's promise, knowing that that dream is truer than this life, whatever circumstances in this life you're facing. Let me read for you the verse of my old Kentucky home that never gets sung because it is thoroughly depressing. The third verse, how the song ends. So they're, they're, they're in the slave plantations dreaming about my old Kentucky home, keeping themselves alive with this dream. And then it just ends with despondency. The head must bow and the back will have to bend wherever the darkie may go. A few more days in the trouble wall and in a field where the sugar canes grow. You know what he's saying there? Not a few more days we'll be delivered and get to go back to Malden, take you home. In a few more days we're just going to have to die in this sugar. A few more days till we tote, a few more days to tote the weary load. No matter, it will never be light. It's never going to be light. A few more days till we totter on the road, then my old Kentucky home, good night. Dying the dream of ever returning to my, I love this illustration because Kentucky's heaven, right? It's really cool. Here's what he's admitting. The dream of my old Kentucky home is just a fantasy. Something to console themselves as they try to get through a few more days until they say goodbye. Not just to this cruel existence, but also to the dream of returning to their old Kentucky home. Then my old Kentucky home, good night. And this world has taught every single one of us that this is the nature of hope. It's a nice thing to keep us going, but it will never come true. And so people, with their heads in the cloud, are only denying the reality of the way things are. <clears throat> but Peter is telling us that's that not having your heads in the clouds is a denial of reality. To be despondent and cynical and fearful and doubting is not being a savvy realist. It is a denial of what is true. Biblically speaking, having your heads in the clouds of God's hope and promise is not naive. It is right and true. It is something demanded of you. It is the serious business of the people of hope. 
And so it is true that we are people increasingly living in exile. I'm not going to deny that. I, I talk a lot about this. I have, I, have a, I have a podcast that explores what does it look like to be Christians in this world of exile. And talk, I talk a lot about this. I'm not denying. I'm not naive. When I say heads and clouds, I'm not naive to our exilic existence that is increasingly becoming more hostile. But truer still is we are a people born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. We are exiles, but we are exiles with our heads in the clouds of God's promise. Lord, give us this vision, and may it sustain us. Not as a coping mechanism, that's not true, but as a truer reality than the reality of our circumstances. That our hope in you is not in vain. You are risen from the dead, and this is our destiny. Would that lift us up? And if there are any who do not have their hope in Jesus, I pray they would go to bed haunted with the question tonight, why not? Why deny this living hope? Thank you that you have not given up on us and on this world, but instead you were born so that we might be born again into a living hope that is true. Fix our eyes on that this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.